Let's turn again to Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and read chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We have been looking at the Beatitudes together, and this morning we conclude that study. I've enjoyed it so much that I think I'll pop over into a related one. Fruits of the Spirit will be short. We have the Gospel of John to conclude, God willing, perhaps sometime around the Easter season. I'd love to do a major study, and probably we'll be moving towards that, of the Book of Romans. But let's summarize where we've been. We've called the Beatitudes the marks, the characteristics of citizenship inside the kingdom. We are saved by grace and by grace alone, but that grace is given shape and evidence and character by the Beatitudes. If we don't exhibit, if we are not on the way to exhibiting these qualities, Jesus says we are not citizens of God's kingdom. His kingdom. Now the Beatitudes consist of two groups. We're coming to the end of them. Two groups of four. The first group are groups which are on the way. And they conclude with hungering. Because of that they have to do with a kind of emptiness. We are poor in spirit. We are hungering and thirsting. We are mourning over things We need, we are humble. There's a hungering for a kind of emptiness. When we don't have something, we hunger for it. The second group has to do with being satisfied. We're citizens of the kingdom. That which has been reached out for has been filled. So we have an overflowing mercy and pure hearts and power to make peace. So hearts like that obtain mercy. They see God. They live in a deep, intimate, lifelong love relationship with the living God. And, the text we've come to this morning, are persecuted. Now, both of these groups of four culminate in one word. Both move towards and end in righteousness. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And verse 10, 
there will be those who will be persecuted on account of righteousness. Verse 11 and 12 goes on and amplifies on that and gives a a correlate verse, not for righteousness' sake, but for Christ's sake. Apparently, suffering and being filled in righteousness is related to Christ. If we are covered with the righteousness of Christ, if we are persecuted for righteousness, if we rejoice and have great joy for Christ's sake, it is because we are related to Christ, connected to Christ, look like Christ, have lives shaped like Christ. It's this attachment to Christ which apparently gives life its character. Now the question for today, a question, the initial question is, why should such a life, why should a righteous life, why should a life attached to Christ be persecuted? My sister's six years older than me, And uh, she went to college a year early, skipped her senior year of high school. And so when I was 11, possibly even 10, my beloved sister was off to college. I missed her terribly. But I was confused and bewildered and perplexed when I got reports back in the family. I was so proud of sister. I looked down on my notes and remembered I loved uh, and those my preteen years, going around with her as she would play throughout the city of Washington, the Cosmos Club, the Friday morning music clubs. I was so proud of my sister. And reports came back from college that there was a gaggle of girls there that had started mocking her and persecuting her and short-sheeting her and uh, shunning her in the hallway. I remember my confusion. How could somebody so sweet and pure and merciful and peaceable One who did love the Lord Jesus Christ and relied on his glory. Why was she being persecuted and mocked and shunned by her peers at school? What is it about living for Christ that is offensive? In Luke 16, Jesus gives one particular clue, one key. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and, in this translation, money. Then verse 14 describes the next step, the persecution and mockery. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they scoffed at him. So there's the persecution and the explanation. They were lovers of money. Verse 15, Jesus goes on with one other step and says, But he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before people. So here is the rationale for persecution. Apparently it has two roots. And the first one is idolatry. Whenever we put anything, any person, any place, any rationale in God's place, it is an idol. And secondly, when we try and justify that, when we rationalize it for ourselves, these are the roots of persecution. Jesus said you simply can't serve two sovereigns at the same time. The call to the supremacy of Christ, of loyalty to Christ, trumps all other primary loves. It topples all other primary commitments. 
And so in order to justify ourselves, our idolatries, our other primary loves, we have to mock a life devoted to righteousness, a life devoted to Christ, will be persecuted by any forces which are his rivals. Now, our church has a special connection with one who has made a study of the persecuted church. I'll use his pen name, Nick Ripkin. Nick and his wife are deeply and deservedly loved by this church. They have spoken here and taught on this very subject, not in the mild way I've already illustrated and that some of us sometimes experience in the West, but in its most cosmic proportions internationally. Many of you, I know maybe most of you, have read this book. It's riveting. It's dangerous. At the same time, it horrifies, convicts, and inspires. It is a humbling, amazing look at the power of the gospel when it is unleashed in the church. It is an incredible testimony to the impact the resurrection can have on how we live each day of our lives. It shames us for our shallowness. It encourages us in our faith. It provides examples of lives offered up to be living sacrifices and to be used in the potter's hand. If you have not read it yet, you should. It amazes us by what God is doing in some of the very toughest ministry fields in his world. It reveals that God is building his church, not just if the government allows it or if the economy is good. The book reveals that God is building his church and if he needs to, will even use evil people and evil events to further and not thwart his purposes. I want to remind many of you and others who have not yet read it of the highlights from this remarkable chronicle of God's blessing that Nick Ripkin has given. It uh, started out this way. He said, I was seeking to see what spiritual survival strategies and faith lessons could be learned from those who had endured persecution. Is it possible that faith might only survive, but thrive? Let me uh, just skip over a summary of some of the stories of the book. Many of you have heard them. And give John Schaus's takeaways from the book. There are five. First of all, I learned from this book to ask better questions. I've already allowed myself to ask one of the ones that the book teaches me isn't all that good. Why is there persecution? I've given an answer. Because of idolatry and because of our need to justification, ju justify it, but the book says there are much better questions to ask than that. Questions like, how can God use me? How can God bless others in this persecution I am walking through? Ripken writes, I have never encountered a mature believer living in persecution who asked us to pray that their persecution would cease. I've never heard such a request. Not one. Rather, persecuted believers ask us to pray that they would be faithful and obedient through their persecution and suffering. We need to learn to ask better questions. 
Second, I learned that persecution and suffering can deepen us. Left to our own devices, we are like spiritual corks. We bob to the surface. And of course it is true. We can have a response to suffering which will mesmerize us or harden us or embitter us. But God regularly allows it. God sometimes sends it to call us and pull us to deeper places. In 1979, Brother Michael, and thank you so much for that testimony, and I wanted to meet the church at the end of it. He had to apologize and explain who Billy Graham was. In 1979, that is what, 34 years ago, one year before I was completing my dissertation, it seems like yesterday, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was giving the commencement address to Harvard University. He had told Harvard students at that time that the comforts of the West had produced shallow, feckless societies that now stood on the brink of the abyss of human decadence. It is time in the West, Solzhenitsyn said in that address, to defend not so much human rights as human obligations. Instead of the rhetoric by which human rights trump human responsibilities, it is time for humanity to learn a lesson from the wormwood and the gall of the Soviet experience through deep suffering. People in our country have now achieved a spiritual development of such intensity that the Western system in its present state of spiritual exhaustion does not look attractive. Ripken's book, as you can see, reminded me of that speech Ripken himself put something similar this way. For decades now, many concerned Western believers have sought to rescue their spiritual brothers and sisters around the world who suffer because they choose to follow Jesus. Yet our pilgrimage in persecution has convinced us that God may actually want to use them to save us from the often debilitating and sometimes spiritually fatal effects of our watered-down, powerless Western faith. Third, I believe suffering can focus us. It can pull us to what the important things really are. I remember a college student sitting across the table from me saying, you know, it's when I went to college, if I can borrow, actually he was borrowing an image from the gambling world, the ante in life went up. That is, I think he learned, we all have to learn sooner or later, that the stakes of life are really life and death. We have to learn sometime, somehow, that God's word and his book isn't just a nice set of maxims. That we indeed don't live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why Nick Ripkin's friend, Dimitri and others would find scraps of paper and write down the precious words of Scripture that they could remember. We can only take to us, Ripken, one of his interviewees says in the book, into persecution what we have to bring in with us, that Bible that we've remembered. Suffering can focus us on what is really important. Suffering, and this is really the heart of the Beatitudes, 
as it describes it, can teach us to rejoice. There is some strange, maybe even mysterious connection. I I can't exactly fathom it, but I know it does exist. Between suffering and the capacity, the ability in Christ to rejoice and have deep joy. It's one of my favorite themes throughout the book, the heart songs. How is suffering faced through praise, through music, through singing in the face of imprisonment? My favorite story of the five or six that had to do, well, my second favorite story, but you've heard the first story from Nick's own lips, is uh, the Muslim brother who was... uh, an enemy to the Christian clinic work, and he would uh, excoriate it in the mosque. Those Christians are poisoning our people and are charging too much for their services when often they were (laughs) given away nothing or for free. (coughs) And when he developed cancer himself towards the end of life, he began to be shunned by his own people, and that clinic began to uh, minister to him and to purchased things at his shop, and through their administration before his death, this enemy of the faith confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, and his youngest wife, his 24-year-old widow, became a Christian and was put in prison, and when she was in a cellar with isolation and darkness, she cried out that this was too much for her and beyond her, and she found instead of the cry, her voice uttered forth in song. And the jailer came to her and said, I'm going to release you and I want you to come back in two days to my home and my family and sing that song for my family and tell them and tell us how you can face life without fear. Um, My takeaway was suffering and persuade us to rejoice. Here are Ripken's words and I'm through. Ripken writes, Ruth and I were part of a response team that ministered to workers in a Muslim country after three colleagues were martyred by a militant Islamic fundamentalist. Understandably, that was a grief-filled, emotion-laden, and spiritually challenging time. Even so, what many of us who were there remember most from those days is joy. Of course, there was profound grief, immense grief, but the joy was unmistakable. During that time, we sensed an unearthly, heavenly identification. Those servants and their deaths had partnered with our Master and His cross. They had shouldered their own crosses for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of witness. During our time of grieving, we learned an important spiritual lesson. Before we can grasp the full meaning of the resurrection, we have to witness or experience crucifixion. We spend our lives so afraid of suffering, so averse to sacrifice, that we avoid even the risk of persecution or crucifixion. Then we will never discover the true wonder and joy and power of resurrection faith. Ironically, avoiding suffering would be the very thing that prevents us from partnering deeply with the risen Christ. The Beatitude says, rejoice and be glad. There is a fifth point. Let me just mention it. That fifth point is in suffering. We realize who God is and who we are. Stories replete in the book of the power of God and the understanding of who we are. One Russian prisoner 
as a guard, was amazed at the power of God that had been displayed in his life, said, Who are you? And came back to reply from Dimitri, I am a son of the living God, and his name is Jesus. To go through suffering with Christ is to understand the power of God and our identity with him. It invites us to a life which isn't just lived for him, but with him. Christ and no other. Living in holy God, we do not uh, run to persecution and you do not ask us to. But you do ask us to live a life which is a witness, full, abundant, and free. To allow others to make a decision to see and to be drawn to or to turn from. May we live that way because we not only live for you, but with you. In Jesus' name.